It's good to see all of you here, all 15% of you. It's really good to uh, be gathered together and to still be able to meet on this special uh, Easter Sunday morning. And uh, great to sing the songs and to worship Christ together. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, the other day, actually in our missional family, we were talking about uh, Easter and what the significance was for you growing up. And maybe it's just my poor memory, but I don't remember Easter being like a big deal, okay? And I'm like Darren, I grew up in the church, and I grew up in, I went to Mennonite church for a while, I went to Baptist church for a while, even went to Catholic church for a while. I didn't get it, okay? I didn't get it that Easter was a big deal. And so when you're coming into the service today, I'm not sure what you're coming in, what kind of expectation, what kind of background, but Easter is a big deal, okay? Though I didn't catch it, I want to tell you here today, Easter is a big deal. It is the day that um, Christians look to and celebrate because without it, there is no Christianity, okay? And so this morning, what I want to do just really quickly is look at three things, Okay, I want to look at resurrection proof, I want to look at resurrection power, and I want to look at resurrection people. Nice and neat, right? Resurrection proof, resurrection power, and resurrection people. The resurrection, like I just said, is at the center of Christianity. It is the thing that we point to to say that this is why we believe that Christianity is actually true. This is why we do any of the things that we're doing as believers. And so when it comes to the, the proof of the resurrection, um, we just have to look back really at the first century, at the early believers and what they were believing in and what they stood in. And if you're interested, I just jotted these down. If you want like a deeper dive into some of the arguments behind the resurrection I would recommend books like uh, C.S. Lewis's book uh, called Miracles, or if you have like a whole summer, N.T. Wright's book on the resurrection of the Son of God, which is about yay thick, okay, but it's very in-depth. And then obviously Tim Keller's book, uh, Hope in Times of Fear or the Reason of God. All those books, okay, go deeper into what we're just going to like dip our toes into in this first point here, resurrection proof. You may come to Easter morning as a Christian, and you may think that this is the morning where all Christians just kind of set aside any doubts that they may have had about the resurrection. Today's the day where you kind of, you get dressed up, and any questions that you might have had are just slipped to the side, and we just agree to all agree and put the smile on that, yeah, the resurrection happened. And listen, from the get-go, from the beginning, Christians struggled with the resurrection. I mean, people who saw the resurrected Jesus struggled with the resurrection. But in the beginning, right from the start of the church, if you look through the book of Acts, if you kind of do like a quick scan of the sermons that were preached and the things that they were focused on, Christianity was all about the resurrection. It all focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this Easter morning, we may ask like, Where is this proof? If this point is resurrection proof, where is the proof of this resurrection? Because people around us who are not believers um, would say that this is a great morning. You know, it's beautiful, especially the sun is shining. There's probably going to be families that are going to do like Easter egg hunts. 
somebody was doing an Easter egg hunt on our street, and they put like a, uh, an egg on our front door. You know, they just decided to hide it there, and these kids ran up and found this egg on our front door. We didn't take it, but it was just sitting there, you know. Um, it's a day for chocolates. It's a day for like maybe like thinking good thoughts, you know, it's a fresh start, springtime, whatever it is. But a person dying and then rising from the dead, I don't know about that. I wouldn't believe in that. But from the beginning, the historical narrative of the early church has been that Jesus rose from the dead. And N.T. Wright, in his um, book on the resurrection, he says, you know, proving something historically happened is really difficult. Okay, it's not like taking a science experiment and saying, like, I know this is going to happen in a lab. I can do this. I can burn this element, and such and such is going to happen. Um, a historical event is not like that. You can't just, like, recreate it, okay, in a lab or something. You've got clues. You've got little bits of information. But the strongest thing you have in um, understanding what has happened historically is the testimony of witnesses, the testimony of witnesses. I remember one time I almost got into a car accident. It was close, okay? We were, drive- we were actually driving to church, and it was one of those mornings where like a little bit of snow had fallen, but not a lot, and the sun was just coming out, and so it was like really slick. So we were going down a road that we didn't have any stop signs, so we were just flying along below the speed limit, okay? Just flying along at a decent pace. And there was all these crossroads that were coming, and they had stop signs. And so at one point, we were driving along, and I could see another car coming, and we were going to meet at some point. And I thought, that guy is going really fast, okay? And he's either got some better tires than I do, or, or something's going on that he doesn't know, but this could be a problem. And as we got closer, it was like, I don't know if you've ever had this, you could see the accident was about to happen before it was happening. So we were getting really close, and I could see him actually trying to stop this car, and it was not stopping. And at that point, it was actually sliding, okay? So I knew that this guy is coming through that stop sign. And so as he's coming in, the T-bone is about to happen. I just grabbed the wheel. They don't teach you this in driver training. But I grabbed the wheel and somehow was able to maneuver over, and he came literally right beside me, and I avoided him. But the van went into a tailspin, and we ended up in the ditch. But no accident, okay? Just bumper ripped off. So after a while, we, obviously, we got out, and we talked. Everybody's okay. Uh, the police came and was writing up a report of this. And, and the police officer then came to me after, and he said, hey, what happened? I kind of explained to it, uh, explained the whole situation just like that, you know, told him the whole deal. And he said, okay, just so you know, the other driver said that he actually slid right through the stop sign and that it was his fault. In the record, written down. And basically at that point, the police officer was saying, you're, you're scot-free, okay? There's nothing on for this whole event. There's nothing on you for this. We know that it was him. And later, actually months later, we actually ended up going to court for this because the guy tried to fight this because probably because he saw his insurance rates were going up, right? He saw his insurance rate, and he tried to fight this. But what stood against him? His own testimony, which was in the record. And even today, I don't know if you've seen it on the news at all, but even today in the U.S., there's the massive George Floyd case, right? All kinds of details, evidence, experts. But what is the thing everybody wants to hear and has their eyes and ears glued to? It is the testimony of witnesses. What did they see? 
tell me. You were there. What did you see? And so for the New Testament, the place where it begins, the, the starting point for the resurrection is always, who was there? Who saw these events? And when we talk about the resurrection as Christians, we don't just base it off of myth. We don't just base it off of like hearsay. We have actual testimony of people who were there. So we heard this passage just read, but why don't you, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians 15 so we can see these verses again. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul here is saying, actually, the first thing that convinced me, the first thing that I interacted with was the resurrection. Okay, and it came for him in the appearance of Jesus Christ himself. But it was resurrection was the first thing. And he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Paul's saying, this is how it worked. The first thing that we have come to interact with as early Christians, as Christians of this new faith, is the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason why we believe that is because we actually have people. There are witnesses that you can go to and you can talk to. 1 Corinthians is written only 20 years after Jesus has died and risen from the dead. 20 years. That may sound long to you, but it doesn't sound long to me anymore, okay? I can remember 9-11. That was 20 years ago. I remember a ton of details about that event and that day. I don't even have a good memory, okay? And I can remember a lot of details about 9-11, and I know that if I went to New York City or to Washington, D.C., I can still talk to people who literally saw the planes fly into the building. I could interview them. I could say, where were you when that happened? That's what Paul is saying about this, about the resurrection. He's saying, listen, do you doubt this resurrection? Of course you do. You're the early church. That's the whole reason why the Gospels were written. The resurrection was the first event. The Gospels were, were written later for those who doubted. We all doubt. Paul says, if you doubt, you're in good company. But guess what? You can talk to someone who's there. You can still go talk to someone who witnessed this resurrection. And he says, if you want to talk, if you want to investigate some more, they're there for you to talk to. They are real, live people, real witnesses. C.S. Lewis says this in his book, Miracles. He says, the resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or the good news which the Christians brought. What we call the Gospels, the narratives of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord's life and death, were composed later for the benefit of those who had already accepted the Gospel. The first fact in history of Christendom is a number of people who say that they have seen the resurrection. What they were claiming was that they had all, at one time or another, met Jesus during the six or seven weeks that followed his death. These are people that were like, they didn't just see a mirage, it wasn't just like the Loch Ness monster, like Jesus walking over some back alley in Jerusalem. They were with him. They spent time with him. They saw and witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, what you are looking at here is a resurrection, which is, that's mind-blowing, okay, for anybody. 
And he's saying, if you want to really understand that, there are real live witnesses that you can go to and ask about it. But not only are there real live witnesses, there were unlikely witnesses. So some people have said, man, Christianity in the early days was just, you know, it was trying to get something going. And so they came up with this grand narrative, this story of Jesus dying and then raising from the dead. And yet, when you look at the people that actually converted to this, the earliest believers were mainly Jewish believers. Okay, that begins to change later as Paul goes and reaches out to the, to the Romans and to the Greeks. But early unbelievers were Jewish believers. And in the Jewish mindset, a, a kind of middle-of-the-line resurrection was not even close to what they understood resurrection to be. They understood resurrection, but resurrection was going to happen at the end of the age and would usher in this kingdom where you'd have this Messiah who would live earthly reign. But to have someone, to have a Jew, to have Jesus live, die, and then kind of in the middle of the story rise from the dead, that was not in their books at all. It's not in their narrative. And yet the first believers, the first ones who were convinced about this reality of the resurrection were these unlikely Jewish believers who would not have ever dreamt up a story like this. N.T. Wright puts it this way, The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or the sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures, to suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter into the fantasy world of our own. So Wright is saying, listen, from a historical perspective, and he's a New Testament scholar, he's saying there was no way that like early Jews would have just like thought this thing up and would have been like, hey, let's write into the story a resurrected Jesus. The only reason that they believed it was because they experienced the risen Jesus. It was a reality for them. And maybe the last, uh, the most surprising, and we just read these verses, was the actual testimony of women. Okay, so you've probably heard this before, but in the first century, the testimony of women was either not counted at all or was uh, dismissed. Okay, and so, again, if you're trying to come up with a great story, you're trying to come up with some way to start this brand new movement where you think, okay, Jesus We've got to start this movement. He's dead. Now let's make up some story. Let's talk about a resurrection and let's have women be the first testimonies. That would not have been your go-to response in the first century. Yet what is recorded for us in John chapter 20? John 20 verse 16. We've heard this already. It says this. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her, and that he had said these things to her. Mary was like the first witness, right? And we heard the other names of other women who were the first witnesses. Why would that be recorded? Like, why would you use that as your case that Jesus was really who he says he was? The only reason you would use that is because that's exactly what happened. They recorded what actually happened. Not trying to build the greatest case. The greatest case would maybe be to find someone else, some like really authoritative male figure in Jerusalem or something, 
And they're like, no, we're not doing that because that's not what happened. What really happened was these women were the first witnesses. And so you've got these real live witnesses. You've got these unlikely witnesses. And you've got these surprising witnesses, people who saw Jesus resurrected. The fact of the matter is, it's hard to really prove something. But to listen to the witnesses is a powerful testimony. And Paul says this at the end of Acts. You know, Paul at the end of Acts has gone to many different courts. And he's tried to explain the resurrection over and over and over again. And here in Acts 26, he's before Festus. And he says this. But Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Okay, because Festus is like, you're talking about a resurrected guy. Crazy, you know. And Paul's saying, okay, I'm not out of my mind but I'm speaking to you true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this is, has not been done in a corner. Paul's saying, listen, this is not some sort of like secretive movement that is hidden away in a closet in Jerusalem. This is not some secretive sort of like sly new thing that they're... Paul's saying... This is on full display. You want to talk to people? You want to investigate this thing? He's saying, Festus, you are rational. You understand this. Search it out. Talk to people. Investigate it. It is a reality. Resurrection proof. If Jesus rose from the dead, and I believe that he did, what does that mean then? What it means is resurrection power. Many would say that Jesus is a great moral teacher. I mean, you can go around the world. You can talk to people. I've been in Muslim countries, and I've been in super secular countries, you know, including Canada. And you can go around, and you can see that, um, man, people love the idea of Jesus. I mean, he's a great moral teacher for many. He's a prophet for some. He's some sort of a reincarnation for others. But they would point to Jesus and they would say, I like this guy. He's really good. He he's, he's, seems like a nice guy. I'd like to be his friend. You know, that's kind of like the, the line that people would use. But the resurrection actually proves otherwise. The resurrection actually proves that Jesus is more than just a good person. He's more than just a prophet. It was all those things. He's actually God in the flesh. Look at Colossians Chapter 2, I've got the verses here for you to look at as well. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says this, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And verse 10, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Ephesians 1, I, I didn't include it in the slide, but Ephesians 1 also powerfully puts it this way in verse 20. That he worked in Christ. This is, what, this is what God did when he worked in Christ in his death and resurrection. That he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This is who Jesus is. All-powerful, 
all authority. Everything is under his name because of the resurrection. If there was no resurrection, Jesus would be none of those things. But because there is a resurrection, Jesus is everything. The final word is in Jesus. It is found in Jesus. And not only that, but the final word when it comes to sin and the brokenness of this world is also found in Jesus. So on Friday, most of us recognize it was Good Friday, and we remembered the death and the punishing um, nailing of Christ to the cross and the whips and the scourging and all those things, all that he took was for a purpose, was for a reason. It was to, the an- to answer the question of what is wrong with our world? What is with the brokenness around us? And listen, it's not just Christians who know that the world is broken. When we see on the news, you know, an- another video of some sort of horrific event that happened. I know the other week, um, I was shocked again at some of the videos of like these old Asian women being beat up by men. And it really, it bothered me for a number of days seeing that happen. And it, it doesn't just bother me as a Christian. It bothers the world around us. And what, what's bothering them is they know that that is not how it's supposed to be. A 30-year-old man is not supposed to go and kick a 70-year-old woman in the head. That is not how the world was meant to be. And that brokenness, which sometimes is is on display for us to see, and at other times is not on display but happens in our very own hearts, is the reason why Jesus came to die. And the reason why the resurrection gives us hope. Because in the end we know that Jesus actually will make all things right Laura read these verses in in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, that says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have resurrection proof, and we have resurrection power But if we were only left with that, if we were only left with resurrection proof and resurrection power, we would just have this magnificent, amazing God who is right and perfect and is distant. And yet we see in the resurrection story that God wants us to be resurrection people. God wants us to be resurrection people. For God and for us, it's personal, deeply personal. And the story that we have kind of been looking at is actually in John chapter 21. And I just want to close with this. John chapter 21, we have this amazing account where Jesus, after the resurrection, is coming and interacting with different people. And at that point, in John chapter 21, um, Peter is back fishing. Peter is back fishing, and he's, there's about seven of them that are together. Okay, Remember, post-resurrection. They've had some interaction with Christ already as a resurrected Savior, and they're back fishing. They're not making disciples. They're not out preaching. They're back fishing. And we don't want to, I don't want to read too much into the story that it's not saying, but we do see later in Acts that when, when, when Peter was fully convinced of the reality of the resurrection, he was on fire. I mean, he was preaching sermons. People were getting converted. He was just on it. And here, Peter's fishing. 
And who's with him? It's interesting that the, the writer records this actually. It says that two that were unnamed were there. Two unnamed disciples. Nathaniel was there. The thing that we know about, we know very little about Nathaniel other than when Jesus chose him. Jesus says, here's Nathaniel. Here's a guy who's without guile. He's not a troublemaker, okay? He's been kind of like clean. He's a good kid. This is Nathaniel. Then also there's Thomas. We recognize Thomas. He's like world famous as Doubting Thomas. There's the sons of Zebedee, or they're also called the sons of thunder. How do you get that nickname, the sons of thunder? Well, you're probably brutal, right? People in your neighborhood probably know that they used to, you know, used to pick on them or you beat them up or something. Sons of thunder. And then there's Peter, the denier of Jesus. None of the disciples were perfect, but this is a motley crew, right? These are, these are people that have interacted with Jesus, and yet, even post-resurrection, still struggling. And what are they doing? They're fishing. They're fishing. They're not making disciples. They're fishing. And yet Jesus comes to them. And in the story, Jesus comes to them, and he's on the shore, and he says, come, why don't you come over here? And you caught enough. And he says, you know, throw your nets over, and they catch some more. That should be a little bit of a clue, but they don't totally recognize him at first because he's different. He's glorified Jesus now. So he looks like a man, like a person, and yet he's a little bit different. He's in his resurrected body. And so they come to shore, and they don't just like come and like bow down and worship him, which they should. What do they do? They sit around the fire, and he makes breakfast for them. Fish for breakfast. I don't know how often you have that. Fish for breakfast. That's what fishermen eat. Jesus makes breakfast for them. And in the dialogue, you see that Jesus is wanting Peter specifically. He hones in on Peter. He's, he wants Peter to realize that the resurrection is not just an event that happens. It's not just going to be the proving, you know, the proving marker of Jesus' deity, but he wants it to be personal. Peter, do you love me? And he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Each time, Peter's like, of course I love you, Lord. Of course, of course. Again, Peter, do you love me? Peter, is this personal for you? Has the resurrection landed in your heart? Has it been brought home to you? It's not just an event, Peter. It's personal. You are going to be resurrection people from here on out. And are you marked by that, Peter? And at the end of this little back and forth, Jesus literally sums it up in two words for him. At the end of verse 19, he says this. After saying this, so after going back and forth, challenging Peter on his love for him, going back and forth, he says, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Follow me. The first calling that Jesus had for them from the beginning, the calling that he first spoke to them when they were they weren't even disciples yet. And Jesus interacted with them. What was the words that he would say back then? He would say, follow me. And now he's saying, Peter, listen. This resurrection, the reality of the resurrection is going to mark your life. And the way that it should mark your life is that your calling is still to follow me. So for you and I this morning, whether you're a believer from just a 
few weeks ago, whether you're not a believer or whether you've been a believer since you were a child, you're like Darren, you grew up in the pew. The question for you is the same question that Jesus is asking Peter. Will you follow me? This Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, not something that you did a year ago, not something that you did at camp, not something that you did on a missions trip, not something that you kind of did at some point when you were a teenager, but today, Resurrection Sunday, Easter, today, the question remains, will you follow me? And so it's fitting for us at Easter that it happens in springtime um, because you can begin to see some flowers blooming outside, right? Which is wonderful because it reminds you that summer's coming. Like the flowers are like this little representation of summer is actually coming. That's what it's going to be like in summertime. It's going to be nice. I'm going to have to mow the lawn, but the flowers are going to be there. It's going to be beautiful and warm. And for the Christian, we are in this um, already but not yet stage of life where we are believers and believing in the resurrection, but we are not in our glorified bodies yet. But Jesus is like, is like in some ways, he's like the flowers that we enjoy in springtime. He is the full representation of the glorified reality that is to come for us. And so this Easter, we mark again the reality of the resurrection that is a reality in the life and body of Jesus Christ, but is not yet fully in us, but it has begun in our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this Easter Sunday and thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship and to proclaim our resurrected Savior, Jesus. And Lord, um, we do pray that today in maybe a new way that we will with our hearts committed again, not to a religion, not to things to do, but with our hearts committed to Christ, we'll choose today to follow him. And Lord, we pray that that, that new life will actually uh, change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.